Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, lead credential authenticator and part-time notary public at Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, LLC. (laughs) That's the real thing. (laughs) I like the extra little part-time hustle you got there with the notary. You know, times are hard. Gotta keep my options open. (laughs) I'm Jeremy, the Baron of Zydeco Ruggles. The Baron of Zydeco, huh? Yeah. Here to talk about the Queen of Soul. Yeah, I'm here to talk about the Queen of Soul and maybe sell you some spoons. I think spoons are going to be hot this year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am co-host Peter Cook, and until you come back to me, this podcast is what I'm going to do. <laughs> Cute. I am Greg Kaz, head archaeologist at You'll Never Find This Record International, <laughs> an association of international mystery diggers who find the records that you can never find. And it's great to just be here talking about records that you can find and you should find and you should have. So, welcome. It's going to be a good one. No, you, welcome you. Uh, welcome welcome to the listeners, I mean, of course, but... I'm, welcome to, I'm welcoming the listeners, you know. Yeah, well, my intention was, of course, towards the listeners. But yeah, it's great to be here with you guys once again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jeremy's a bit of a podcast gatekeeper. Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> yes, so glad to have you back, Greg. Uh, last time you were on, we talked about Michael Henderson going places. That was a while ago now. Yeah, that was a few months ago with with a side order of Chico Barque for the episode I missed. True, <laughs> true, yeah. true. Well, we uh, you know you decided to come back for you know to talk about an artist that no one's ever heard of. <laughs> this obscure nope. stuff, man. How are you going to get hits with like this obscure stuff? You're never going to get clicks with that, man. <laughs> to our listeners, that's sarcasm. <laughs> yes. In case you are unable to detect sarcasm. Because you might know, since you clicked on this, that we're talking about Aretha Franklin today. What album is it, Greg? Let Me In Your Life, 1974 Atlantic Records. Yes, her 20th studio album. That's right. It hit number one on the Billboard R&B album charts. Uh, Probably, uh, you know, due in no small part to the first song that we're going to feature, which is... Until you come back to me, that's what I'm going to do, which is side A, track five. Yes. And we'll we'll be back after we listen to that. 
this song to me is just uh, one of those moments in recorded music. I always think about this song as one of the examples of like, wow, humanity and society once produced, once just all these elements combined to make something just so luminous and so shiny and so perfect. Every note of that song is just so enveloped in this kind of like glow to it. You know, there's just something completely magical about it. There's actually a picture, if you can go on the internet and just Google image, uh, Aretha Franklin, Donny Hathaway, a picture that I think was taken at the session for this song. And the two of them are just hanging out. They're both dressed all in black, I think. And like, they're, they both have these smiles on their faces. And they're just so like, you know, it's just such a, the, the, the picture itself just emanates this glow. And like, just to think that they were working on this. And when you look at the credits, okay, written by Stevie Wonder and Clarence Paul and Morris Brodnax in the late 60s, you have Aretha on piano, you have Hugh Kraken on guitar, you have Donny Hathaway on electric piano, you have Richard T on organ, you have Chuck Rainey on bass, you have Bernard Purdy on drums, you have Kenneth Bichelle on synthesizer, and then you have Anne S. Clark, Pat Smith, Margaret Branch, background vocals. Oh, and if that's not enough, you have a flute solo by none other than Joe Farrell, the great jazz um, sax and flute player. And the horn and string arrangements are by Arif Mardin. So, mm-hmm. like, so that right there is just a murderer's row in and of itself. You know, just to, like, every name involved is like somebody you have a ton of other records that they're featured on. And they all came together in a New York studio, Atlantic Studios, on the by a Columbus Circle up there, to just make this absolute slice of magic. Aretha is singing as beautifully as she ever did. Her voice is in amazing shape, and um, I guess this record, this album, was actually recorded. It was released in '74. It was recorded over the course of 1973. Um, and released early the next year. So I guess um, around the time that her previous album came out, she already was like just plowing forward. And of course, these were the days when artists would put out two or even three albums in a year. I mean, obviously, this is her 20th album already, you know, 1974. She's got 20 albums out. So yeah, this song has just got a magical vibe to it, you know, just the way the way she just really makes you feel the lyric and the way the sensitivity of each of those master musicians that are backing her. And, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's obviously like a very, very special track. And it's one that I would put up there among my very, very favorites that she ever did. So obviously it's a big hit off this album. Um, it's not the only great track, but it's deservedly the best known one. Yeah, yeah, that was a big hit. It was number one on the R&B charts and number three on the U.S. Hot 100 in 1974. So, you know, that's that's the one that people are going to know from this album. I feel like it's been it's been covered. It's been covered a few times. I remember a pretty nice version by uh, the singer Basha from uh, the late 80s. Oh yeah, I like Basha a lot. She did a really nice cover of it. With a little yep. bit more of like an updated kind of like you know '80s pop treatment, but yeah, her version is nice. But but Aretha's is definitive. I mean, it's a great song that people can't help but try to like do something with and cover. You know, they they want to sing it, but 
after, like I said, with Aretha and the rest of that list of names that I just mentioned, like, <laughs> why even bother? Yeah, it, it is just, this is a star-studded affair. You know, it's like you have Aretha Franklin alone. That seems like enough, but, you know, it's yeah. just this powerhouse backing her with all the name, those names you mentioned. And there's others on other tracks on this, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But, yeah. Uh, as far as you mentioned, well, yeah, Aretha Martin, he had produced this with Aretha Franklin and Jerry Wexler, who yes. of course, had a long relationship working with Aretha. And uh, Tom Dowd was also involved. Yes, in Tom the, Dowd. And, uh, you know, this was actually, it, it was recorded, I believe, at um, Atlantic Recording Studios on 57th Street, Manhattan. So I think Tom Dowd... Probably Atlantic's engineer Gene Paul was involved. He would, was, uh, and know. Phil Ramone. Phil Ramone, <laughs> yeah. the great, the, the great Phil Ramone, who who ended up being Billy Joel's producer, right? Well, well yeah. Well, he, well, Phil Ramone goes back. I mean, he engineered Gets Gilberto. You know, the girl from Ipanema. He uh-huh. produced a ton of like Barbara Streisand albums. He produced a ton of like he engineered a bunch of like you know just Al Jarreau and Billy Joel and just a ton of people. You know. Yes. Just, Huge. He's he's got a book that's very worth reading because like his whole insight on recording. He was one of the masters of the form. Yes, even the engineers on this album are legends. Yeah, 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 (laughs) exactly. And so if a critic says, "Ah, "I'm not so crazy about this album," I'm like, "Oh, oh, really?" You know. But uh, we'll 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 get to that bit a little bit later. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and so I became aware of this album through you, Greg. You post on your Instagram, yep, regularly. <laughs> and yes, was, yes, yes. It was it was close to a year ago that I think you posted about this record, and I had never heard of it. Of course, I, you know I knew the song that we just listened to until you come back to me, but uh, I otherwise wasn't familiar with it. And I put it on, and I was liking it, and by the time we got, I got to the fourth song, "I'm in Love." I was in love with this album. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And again, like we we mentioned some names just for that one song, but scanning the rest of the credits, you get Stanley Clark, Bob James, Rick Morata, Sissy Houston. You know, it's Whitney just, Houston's mother. <laughs> Whitney Houston's mother. Yeah, Willie Weeks, Ralph McDonald. It just goes on and on. And Cornell Dupree, it's just endless, you know. Like mm-hmm. they only only the big guns for the Queen, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Queen of Soul, and yet it's amazing. Like this would be a career highlight for most artists, and for yeah. Aretha, it's kind of this forgotten record. Yeah, yeah, and it sold really well too. Obviously, the chart placements that we just mentioned, you know, and yet it's kind of like I think the reason is because. When people talk about Aretha records, you know, you have those certain ones from that initial rush of fame that she had. Like, I Never Loved a Man the Way That I Love You, that album. Lady Soul, Aretha Arrives, you know, records like that. Spirit in the Dark, Amazing Grace, uh, Young, Gifted, and Black. You know, those are all records that have a certain classic reputation. Like, those are iconic records. This album doesn't seem to have as much of an iconic vibe around it, for whatever reason it is. Not that it's any less good, in my opinion, as any of the other albums I just mentioned, but it's for some reason, it's just an album that, I don't know if it's because, you know, the title, Let Me In Your Life, and it's just got this cover that's just this kind of glamour shot of Aretha and her kind of like fur mink, whatever this thing that she's got on there. And, uh, 
that should be considered a huge classic, but after so many classic records that she already had, it just, I guess by that point, it's like, oh, it's just Aretha's new album, whatever. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. And uh, Sean, you were saying that you read some reviews on this beforehand, and that was kind of the general consensus, like contemporary to the time it was released reviews, right? Yeah, yeah. I'd read like the original Rolling Stone review and like a Robert Christogau review, and no one had anything bad to say about Aretha because at this point, like, how could you? What what rev- yeah. what critic would yeah. like dare to say anything bad? But they were all just like, the record's fine, B plus across the board, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like you know, but they were spoiled for music in those days. That was an era that where everybody was just so spoiled for great music that like you can have a record this superlative and it's oh, that's fine it's okay b minus you know whatever yeah. <laughs> well, and, and it was like a- it was also a, a time when a lot of critics and people were starting to decry albums that they thought were too smooth which we've talked about before which is is kind of like a, a bullshit <laughs> approach well, to appreciating you know, music for the most part it, it is <laughs> well there, there's something else that fits in there is that also come the early 70s it was we were coming out of the singles era and it was turning into the album era. And a lot of critics, the, that generation of critics like Chris Gow, Dave Marsh, Grail Marcus, all the big influential critics of those days, those guys came up with 45s on jukeboxes. For them, rock and roll was mm. best expressed as a three-minute 45, balls out, you know, rocking 45, or a soul 45, a soul stomp, sweaty, churchy, you know, upbeat you know, two and a half minute, three minute single. So once 1970 hits and people start saying, oh, wait, we're making albums now. Like for the last couple of years after Sgt. Pepper, you know, the white bands were making albums. And now you were starting to get albums from people like Marvin Gaye and Isaac Hayes and Stevie Wonder and Aretha Franklin. And these critics had a funny attitude about black artists who were making these album statements that were well produced and had yeah. like a, a lot of musicians on them. Uh, there's a there's a line that Chris Gow said in his review of Aretha's Young, Gifted, and Black album where he said something to the effect of, this has all of the extra instrumentation that you would expect from an album aimed at the nouveau bourgeois black album audience. You know, kind of like a snippy attitude. Yeah. You know, and it's like, for me, it's just complete bullshit. Like, why should you expect people to, like, make the same three-minute gut bucket, you know, 45? That Why can't somebody say, hey, I'm going to make a song that's a little bit longer. I'm going to explore this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to grow. But critics have this thing, oh, you're getting pretentious. Oh, you say <laughs> you want to you wanna grow artistically. Ah, oh, you're just pretentious. This is pretentious. They love to call shit pretentious. Yeah, or like when an artist gets a little bit older, like, oh, this doesn't have the same spark as when they were younger. Exactly, exactly. So, And so that's why you can try to be an auteur, but you were treading on thin ice with these guys if you were starting to say, I wrote all these songs, I'm trying to say something more than just baby i love you oh man then you're really in trouble (laughs) well how about we uh feature another song before we go any further the next one we wanted to talk about was the the title track let me in your life yes written by bill withers yes correct uh very great bill withers song uh and it's funny because bill withers has such a rich catalog and he's universally adored but there's about a half a dozen 
Bill Withers songs that everybody knows. The rest yeah. is album tracks, you know. But man, those half a dozen songs are gold. Yeah, um, like, this this song Lena, isn't. Yeah, Lean on Me, Use Me, Ain't No Sunshine, Grandma's Hands, maybe. Just the two of know. us is that him? Well, he didn't write that. Just the two okay. of us was written was written by a guy who's on this album as a session musician, which is Ralph McDonald, the percussionist. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So yeah, let me in your life. Yeah, side A, track, track one. one. That song, this is the first time I had heard this album in particular. I thought I knew Aretha Franklin well before this, but this is a whole sound and era that I was just ignorant of. And yeah, her, her late 60s stuff is, is always going to be like just the best known overall, I would say. Yeah. Uh, but once the, you're going into the early mid seventies, then yeah, it gets a little bit like, wow, there's a lot of lost gems in her catalog at that point. Yeah. The arrangements are what jumped out to me. Like I, I know what people are saying when they say smoother, like it's more produced, but yep. there's just like some really interesting arrangement. And typically what I do, don't like when I think of smoother music is I feel like there's less energy, but there's not to this. There's a ton of energy. Yeah, there's a ton of energy. And an interesting thing that I made a mental note that I should mention about this album and Aretha in general is that the big story on Aretha, if you talk about her first like, you know, rush of fame in the 60s with respect and all that stuff, was the whole idea about Preacher's daughter from Detroit 
you know, goes down to Memphis and Muscle Shoals, hooks up with all these funky Southern white boys, and just makes the most timeless music ever, you know, and her and the voice that conquered the world and what have you. And so that's the part the critics loved. If you read any of those Rolling Stone anthologies, it's always like they're always talking about Aretha goes down south and like hooks up with like these players down there, the Swampers and all these guys. And that's the whole romantic story that the, that the rock critics of the day loved. But the truth of the matter is that the majority of her work on Atlantic was actually done in New York primarily with a bunch of largely black session musicians who were steeped in jazz and soul and gospel who could play anything for anybody. But like, you know, they always mention guys like uh, Roger Hawkins, David Hood, Jimmy Johnson, Tommy Cogbill, Reggie Young, those like Southern guys. But these guys that I just mentioned here, Bernard Purdy, Chuck Rainey, Cornell Dupree, that's who actually plays on the majority of Aretha's records. And those guys aren't as like of a romantic proposition from a rock critic's perspective as like the kind of like gut bucket, low down, funky Southern white guys. These kind of like really slick, highly trained and versatile, you know, New York jazz and soul session musicians aren't as excite weren't as exciting to the rock critics of the day. So there's that factor. So these guys here are doing what they do best. There's plenty of energy there and these guys are experts at anything that they have to do. But like because they're so like amazing in every respect, you know, that there isn't that like raw unschooled thing that the southern guys had that like it comes off sometimes as being kind of smooth but if you actually analyze what's happening there is amazing energy and like vitality to the music that these guys are making here with Aretha yeah the rhythm arrangements and the strings on the song we just listened to were done by correct me if I'm wrong Greg is it Ymir Diodato Diodato yes uh, another mega name on, involved on this, in this record yeah yeah it's- yeah, Yumir is like, you know, again, a polymath. He raised up in Rio, like he came up in the whole bossa nova scene. And uh, he's such a brilliant arranger that even at the age of 20, he was running around town with like sh- a pencil in his mouth and a, sh- a stack of sheet music under his arm, writing like arrangements for this orchestra and that TV show and this singer's album and that band's album and this and this and that. And he was so good that by the time he came to New York in 1967, he was ready for anything and everything. And he jumped right into the deep end and was doing Sinatra arrangements in no time. So, and he was a key player on the New York session scene, especially around Atlantic Records and also at CTI, which he was signed to. And of course, he's definitely heavily involved on certain tracks on this album, like the one we just heard. Mm Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, let's uh, focus on Aretha for a little bit here. You know that she, of course, is a household name, and you know there people. Some people might be familiar with her story already, but and there's so much to tell. It'd be hard to fit it all into one podcast about one album. But we'll just go with a, some some kind of basics of her her beginnings up to the point of this album. She was born Aretha Louise Franklin in Memphis, Tennessee. 
March 25th, 1942. So she would have just recently celebrated her 80th birthday. She was the daughter of a highly influential Preacher. minister. Yeah, the National Baptist Church, Reverend C.L. Franklin. Franklin. Yep. yep. And Barbara Franklin was her mother. Um, he was one of the first ministers, C.L. Franklin, to have his sermons released on records and to have his own nationally broadcast radio show. He was. I think, I think he released o- over 100 records, I think he released. Like, a wow. Lot of yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Highly influential. He was, you know, rubbing elbows with you know, the biggest names, you know, in music, at the, in the gospel and popular music too, you know, because he was such an influential figure, you know, yes. and so that, you know, she grew up around people like Sam Cooke, Clara Ward, um, it goes on and on, Ray Charles. James Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Dinah yep, Washington. Dinah Washington. Yeah. Uh, later, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. It's it's wild, and there's a whole lot to that, that you could go into with her father, and but I, I think let's stay focused on Aretha. Um, he did recognize Aretha's talent when she was young and coached her. She was uh, apparently what something that's overlooked because her vo- her voice is so strong, but she was also from an early age an excellent piano player. Oh, yeah. She was an excellent piano player. She actually plays the majority of the piano on her own records, which a lot of people don't know. They just think of Aretha, the singer. But she's an incredible pianist. Like, most of the piano you hear on her records is by her. Yeah, yeah. That, which is something, I'll be honest, I didn't really understand that until I started researching for this. Um, and, yeah, she was vocally she was learning to imitate Clara Ward and Mahalia Jackson another person that she would have been around growing up um and you know she started out in gospel and sang in the New Bethel Baptist Church in Detroit where the family ended up moving and then she also went out on the road with her father a lot and performed while he was out on the road doing his thing um and he did encourage her move toward secular music when she was 18 and which is kind of surprising you know a lot of times you know preachers don't want their kids to like sing that devil music you know but (laughs) he had a little bit more of like a worldly point of view i guess than most preachers did Mm -hmm. yeah it was i was surprised too because i i would expect like you said i would expect it to be like that's the devil's music but you know he i i think i get the impression that he also saw things based on how highly influential he was. He could see the value of things from a a monetary standpoint. Yes, yes, of course, of course. (laughs) And certain things are just inevitable. When you have somebody that talented at such an early age, you know, she was wowing people in church when she was like, you know, 12 years old. So it was like destiny, you know? Yeah, yeah, and there's recordings from her at that age, and they're phenomenal. She had it right from the get-go. So her father did help her record like a two-song demo and she moved to new york city and ended up getting signed to columbia through john hammond who i know we talked we talked about on our josh white episode isn't that right jeremy i don't remember (laughs) (laughs) not to be confused with johnny hammond (laughs) different different figure um but she started out more as like a jazz and blues recording artist at that time columbia didn't really quite know how to record her or to market her and a lot of people sort of like overlook or dismiss her early stuff on columbia although i have to disagree there's there are some great records 
that she did for Columbia, but it didn't really fully, fully come together. Like, she was frustrated with the stuff that they were having her sing, even though a lot of it came out really great. But mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't until Jerry Wexler came in after five years or so on Columbia. Jerry Wexler came in and um, signed her. And that's to when Atlantic just took off like a rocket right there. Yeah, he wasn't afraid to kind of mix her gospel background into the emerging soul and pop sound. That was the, the whole mid point of what he wanted to do. He wanted the gospel to be in there. Yeah. And that's, you know, when she got to Atlantic and that's when her series of her most well-known recordings. Yes. Queen of, almost overnight, the Queen of Soul, hit after hit after hit. And uh, she was just, again, I was we were talking about Rolling Stone magazine before. Man, every single record she made back then, those guys praised like as if it was a Beatles record. You know, they were really, really, she was hugely, hugely influential and her run of success just went nonstop on Atlantic. And, and then, uh, then she made the gospel record. She made Amazing Grace and then Young, Gifted, and Black. These are iconic records. And then she made the record with Quincy Jones in 73 called Hey Now, Hey, Other Side of the Sky, which is a little bit more kind of, I want to say, experimental for her or kind of like, modern, jazzy. She was trying a couple of different things. There are some blindingly great tracks on it, but it was the first album where people started to say, hmm, I don't quite get what Aretha's trying to do here. Although, I mean, listen, the version of Bobby Womack, the Bobby Womack song that she does, that she does on there, that's the way I feel about you. And then she does this up-tempo Moody's mood. There's some great stuff on there. But it was considered a bit of a misfire for her at the time. So she wasted no time making her next record, which is the one we're talking about now. And uh, yeah. that, that was when like her sort of commercial slide started, kind of started, even though, like again, Till You Come Back to Me was a top five hit, number one R&B. So she was still doing great. But I think after this album is when she started to kind of like not know where exactly she was or what she was supposed to do. And for the rest of the 70s, the rest of her albums on Atlantic, each sold a little bit less than the one before, even though there's a lot of great stuff on them. But this one right here was is a product of that period where every new Aretha record was no, suddenly no longer automatically considered a classic, even though by anybody else's standards, this record is as good as anybody could reasonably be expected to make, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a fantastic record. And, and you mentioned Bobby Womack, the, the next song that we want to feature is the one that I, that really sold me on this record. And it was written by Bobby Womack. That's I'm in love. Are we ready to do that one? Let's do it. All right. Side a track four. I'm in love by Bobby Womack.
from the time period on this record the one consistent praise that they gave it was that the the background music was an excellent showcase of aretha's vocal talents and that her vocals really were the star of this record whereas like a lot of other production from the time wanted to kind of start burying the vocals into the track a little bit and aretha one of the greatest singers of all time just really shines and that track is a great example of it yeah. No producer in their right mind is going to bury Aretha's voice on a track. Right. right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you got yeah. one job. You have one job. Record Aretha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one just gives me chills when she hits those high notes. Yeah. And, like, yeah, she usually did pretty well with uh, Bobby Womack songs. I mean, anytime she did one of his, it always came out pretty great. And yeah, so you got Gwen Guthrie is one of the background vocalists on there. Gwen Guthrie. Yeah. She was on the Michael Henderson record that you were on last time talking about. Yep, yep. And, uh, you know, she wrote a lot of songs, sang on a ton of records, made some great records of her own, and had that hit in the 80s, Ain't Nothing Going On But The Rent. Interesting pairing here of, uh, we got Donnie Hathaway again on piano, Stanley Clark on bass between one Return to Forever session and another, you know, laying down some soulful bass for Aretha, which is pretty interesting. Great session drummer Rick Morata and uh, William Eaton arrangements. Yeah, it's nothing but, like, top dogs on this thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, Donnie Hathaway, it's just, like, you know, a complete legend. And I, I did, had no idea he was on this record until uh, – looking into the players and it was just like, Oh, Hey, whoop, Donny Hathaway. <laughs> he was a label mate and contemporary, um, at the time. And, uh, this was, I guess, before his emotional personal problems started to really like get in the way of like, you know, cause I, after 73, he never released another solo record. So this was kind of like in his last functional days as a session player. But up until that point, 
He'd produced people, did a lot of arrangements, played a lot of sessions. You'll find him in a lot of like really odd places, you know, and he was just a very in-demand musician at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I worked with Roberta Flack. Yeah, yeah. He made that legendary duets album with Roberta Flack. And he uh, wasn't really recognized at the time. He did. He never sold as many records as people now assume he did. He sort of got his props later on. At the time, he was kind of he was underrated. He was up and coming, but never really like had that huge. His biggest selling record was his live album, which uh, has that long legendary version of "Voices Inside." Everything is everything with the bass solo by Willie Weeks. And that made uh-huh. Willie Weeks his whole career. And in fact, Willie Weeks is another player on this album. And after that Donny Hathaway album came out, Willie Weeks was like the hottest bass player in the business. And even like all the ex-Beatles were like trying to work with him and stuff, you know, which was a really interesting development. Yeah. That live Donny Hathaway album, doesn't it have him doing a version of You Got a Friend where the audience is singing along with yes. him? Oh, it's oh, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, that, that just gives it. you the chills. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Sean, were you able to find some similar recommended albums you know, for was. the Queen of Soul? <laughs> yeah, I got a short list of other female-fronted records that came out the same year in 1974. First one is Diane Carroll's self-titled album that came out on Motown. Another artist who had put out a lot of material before that and kind of like... In her case, a little closer to the end of her career and doing something a little more soulful, but there's some definite parallels, and that's a cheap one you can find. It's uh, interesting. I, I listened to an interview with Aretha Franklin and Terry Gross from 1999, and of course, it came up. You know, she was from living in Detroit, and obviously was not. She did not sign with Motown. Her and her father thought Columbia was the way to go. Like Motown was a fledgling label at the time, and I just. I thought that was interesting. Like it is worth, uh, yeah, here she is in Detroit. A lot of people will actually argue with you if you tell them, oh, by the way, yes, Aretha Franklin never made a record for Motown. Like, what are you talking about? Of course Aretha Franklin was on Motown. Like they assume <laughs> yeah. everything black from the 60s was on Motown, especially if we're talking about Aretha Franklin. But yeah, even though she was from Detroit, knew all those people, probably went to high school with a bunch of them, never signed to Motown, never made a record on Motown. Yeah, very interesting. Next recommendation, Phoebe Snow's self-titled record came out in 1974 as well. That's got some great. That's a great um, album. Like, yeah, a great album. Lots of roots influence and like gospel and blues and everything going on. Another Motown record from 74, Stevie Wonder presents Cyrita came out the same year. And that's an incredible album that I'm sure will feature on this show at some point. And last one, Margie Joseph put out Sweet Surrender in 1974. That's a, another great parallel to this period of Aretha Franklin. Margie sound. Joseph, it's great you bring her up because she's definitely in the same vein and was also on Atlantic. Sweet Surrender is a really nice record. For me, I would actually recommend the self the album that's just called Margie with a red cover and she's like laying on the floor with a big white dress. Mm-hmm. That record is absolutely killer. Um, that's the one. I, I mean, you know, Sweet Surrender is great. You know, either one is great, but man, that margie album is unbelievable <laughs> well greg yeah, did you have any uh, other ones you want, want to add to that well list? I, I would say like both rufus albums that came out in 74 rags to rufus and rufusized shaka being like a younger version of aretha 
in a sense, at the time, those two records are just absolutely phenomenal. And I don't know, have you guys done have ever done any of the Rufus albums yet? Not yet. It's definitely been talked about. It's, oh, yeah. It's on the those, list. <laughs> those are really worth doing. And it's hard to even pick one. But yeah, those two albums, right. Rags to Rufus and Rufus Eyes, both I would wholeheartedly recommend in this vein, for sure. And you can get them super cheap still. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, Greg, Jeremy, do you have something? No. Okay. <laughs> well, Greg, uh, we know you have a, a, a gig you have to get to, so we'll let you go. Is there anything you'd like to, if you, yeah, we, we know you're at the venue where you're performing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, just like, <laughs> I'll sleep when I'm dead. <laughs> yeah, but. Um, do you have anything you want to plug before we get out of here? Well, you know, uh, for the most part, I've been doing some uh, writing here and there for Wax Poetics magazine. I've, I've This venue that I'm playing at tonight Studio 151 is kind of like my uh, home base venue. I play here like two, three times a week, and it's like kind of like my favorite gig just because it's a very homey kind of vibe, and I can just play whatever I want across genres. And uh, there's some uh, cool stuff coming up. I'm doing this uh, Brazilian carnival-ish party at House of Yes on April 10th in Bushwick in Brooklyn. I'm playing at the Ace Hotel on April 8th uh, in Midtown Manhattan. So just gigs and stuff and, uh, you know, just keeping busy. Unfortunately, I think both of those will happen. Are both of those right (laughs) before this will actually air? Yeah. So hope everybody was there. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, Well, I I trust that they will be because the the House of X party in particular, the House of Yes party is going to be. Uh, it's always like the venue is really insane and it's always packed out. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, I'm, I'm working on an interview with this great Australian musician, actually from New Zealand, Lance Ferguson. That's going to be in a future issue of Wax Poetics. And uh, just a few things along those lines I've been working on. So Cool. Cool. Staying busy. Staying busy. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you for taking a little bit of time out of your very busy schedule to talk with us about this. I'm always glad to do this with you guys. It's just like the previous times it was like when I was actually at home and today it's like, okay, I have to do this and I have to do that. So I have to make adjustments on the fly. So, but let's do this. I'm always down, always down for you guys. I, I think, uh, you know, we, we've been talking about getting you back on for George Duke. Oh yes. Oh yes. That's my man right there. Do not leave me out of the George Duke conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Promise. Coming back yeah. soon with George Duke. Wonderful. All right. Well, so what song are we going to get out of here on? The legendary Leon Russell song, A Song for You. And uh, it's a song that seems to bring the most out of a lot of people. It's a very emotional song. And uh, there's a lot of different versions in different genres. There's like, you know, Leon Russell wrote it. The Carpenters, Karen Carpenter, with her beautiful voice, did it a certain way. But then Donny Hathaway, who we've been talking a lot about, did a real gut-wrenching, heartbreaking version. And there's also a great version by The Temptations, which is the title track of their 1975 album. Uh, And that version is fantastic as well. And then there's this here Aretha version. So you can compare and contrast. Again, it's a song that people really just flock to and it brings the most out of everybody 
And uh, her version is, I mean, she hits some really amazing notes on this one as well. So I think it's a good one to go out on. Fantastic. Yeah, this is uh, the last song on the album. And it's, yeah, I, I was excited when I saw that she was going to sing this one because I, I knew she would knock it out of the park. <laughs> and I love this song. So, all right. Well, thanks again, Greg. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, guys. Yep, for coming back for another episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Greg Kaz. Good luck out there, Greg. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you for letting us into your life. Singing the song.